It's interesting because he is a journalist and I'm a historian. For a historian, the truth is what we can plausibly argue from what the archive tells us. In journalism, it has to be much more narrow. It's is it true or is it not? I discovered that we had a different definition of true. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Kristen Meinzer. And I am your other host, June Thomas. June, it is always a joy to be back on mic with you. And I am especially excited this week because you are sharing a conversation with us that is, frankly, right up my alley. Tell us whose voice we heard at the top of the show. Well, that was Catherine Howe. She's a novelist, a historian, and an incredibly productive writer. Yes. And full disclosure, I just read Vanderbilt. That's Catherine Howe's book with Anderson Cooper a few months ago, and I loved it. I am on the waiting list for their next book, Aster, (laughs) at the library now. Only four more months until that book comes in for me. (laughs) And I am just a huge fan of historical fiction in general. But June, why did you want to talk with Catherine Howe? So there were a number of reasons. In a funny way, I associate this time of year, which is to say around Halloween, when the veil between the worlds is very thin with Catherine. She's written a bunch of books about witches, including putting together the Penguin Book of Witches. So she's often in the media in late October. She also has a really big book out right now, which you mentioned, which she co-wrote with Anderson Cooper, Aster, uh, which we talked about. And I'm just fascinated by people who are incredibly productive, and she definitely fits that description. Yeah, I am also blown away by all of that. I'm like, how does she have enough hours in the day? Exactly. And June, I imagine you saved some questions for our Slate Plus members. What can they expect to hear? How well you know me, Kristen. Our Slate Plus members will hear Catherine talk about her favorite historical novelists, And also why she is so interested in witches and pirates, which is the topic of her upcoming novel. That sounds great and spooky. And (laughs) if you're a Slate Plus member, make sure to stick around for that conversation at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, and why wouldn't you be, you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get exclusive members-only segments, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. Also, if you become a Slate Plus member, you'll be supporting our work and the work of everyone at Slate. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Again, that's slate.com slash working plus. All right, June, let's listen now to your conversation with writer Catherine Howe. Catherine Howe, welcome to Working. I'm really excited to talk about your creative process. Thank you so much for having me, June. I'm excited to talk with you. Now feels like a great time for this conversation because A, you have a book on the nonfiction bestseller list, Aster, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune, which you co-wrote with Anderson Cooper. Uh, That's your second book with him. And... (laughs) You have a novel coming out on November 21st, a true account of Anna Massery's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. And I believe that's your sixth novel. Yeah, it is my sixth novel. You're right. My goodness. Good look at you. And you've also edited two major anthologies, The Penguin <laughs> Book of Witches yeah. and The Penguin Book of Pirates, the latter of which will be out next February. So first of all, few. 
I'm tired. Uh, <laughs> well, that strikes me as incredibly productive. Do you feel productive? This year, I do feel productive. You know, it's funny. Back in 2014, which might have been the last time we spoke, yeah, I had two was- books come out. And at the time, I remember thinking, I can't believe I have two books coming out in the same year. I'm so tired. I'll never do this again. And so far, I'm right. But this year, I have three books coming out. And I am more tired than I ever thought possible. (laughs) So are you a very organized writer? I've gotten more organized. I'd like to think I've professionalized a bit over the years. But I tend to pretty much only be able to work on one thing at a time. The exception to that being, so a true account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. There's so much research that went into it. I did so much reading in primary sources about piracy that it was actually pretty straightforward to put the Penguin Book of Pirates together. And that came about the same way that putting together the Penguin Book of Witches was a direct result of having read so much primary source material to write my first novel, The Physic Book of Deliverance Stain. So you're really kind of, it's what the productivity gurus, you know, like, if you're reading, like, get everything you can out of it. It's actually yeah. a weird way of thinking about creativity. But yeah, I mean, you've read a all bit. those books. Yeah. A bit. So you are a trained historian. And am I right in thinking that all of your novels have been historical novels? Actually, yes, because there were the two YA novels are Conversion and The Appearance of Annie Van Sinderen. And each of those has a contemporary set kind of primary story. Yeah. But each of them has a historical underpinning and a historical framing story. Yeah. So I guess technically speaking, yes, they've all been historical novels in one way or the other. So I find it fascinating. And I I wonder, do you typically begin with a period or historical event that you want to explore or with character or plot? I mean, another way of putting that is, which comes first, the history or the novel? That's a great question. And I've found, what's funny is I've found in working on, now that I've done a couple of nonfiction projects, the order reverses for it. So I will tell you, typically with fiction, I become interested in a particular moment in time, perhaps a particular phenomenon. So my very first novel, The Physic Book of Deliverance Stain, started because I wondered, I, I felt like all the accounts that we encountered of Salem didn't really treat the people who lived in that time period with much respect. I felt like they either treated everyone who lived in the past as hysterical idiots, or it had sort of a cutesy approach to magic. And in neither case did they really take seriously the fact that everyone who was involved in the Salem crisis really lived in a religious and intellectual landscape that held that witchcraft was real and that having a witch trial was a rational thing to do. Mm. So the order of operations that began with that first novel and that has continued in my subsequent work is I think about a phenomenon or moment in time. So in the case of A True Account, I was interested in the golden age of piracy. So A True Account begins in 1726 in Boston, which is kind of the last moment of what we've called the golden age of piracy. And a young girl witnesses a pirate hanging that really did happen in Boston in 1726 and gets caught up in some intrigue and then has to disguise herself and flee. And so I will think about a moment in time, I will really steep myself in primary sources about that moment and also secondary sources that that provide some more wide-scale historical analysis of what was going on. 
And then I will try to come up with a person who I think authentically belongs in that moment. And so with Hannah, Missouri, I spent some time thinking about where would she work? You know, I looked at a map of Boston in 1726 that showed where everything was. I researched if she were, she's bound out to service in a tavern. So I researched what taverns were actually extant at that time. How old were they? Where were they? Who were the kinds of people that she would be likely to encounter? So typically I will go from a moment in time or a phenomenon really being grounded in that moment to coming up with a character who I think really belongs in that moment. And from there, I will see what the character does. So in historical fiction, typically my plot comes last. Um, and I'm also most comfortable writing a fictional person within a real context. Some historical fiction writers, you know, Hilary Mantel, for example, wrote real people. Yeah. I myself don't, I, I, my characters will come in contact with real people, or in the case of Physic Book, Deliverance Dane was a real person, but she's so heavily fictionalized in my story, mm -hmm. even, you know, the outcome of her life is actually <laughs> different in my book than it is in, in real life, because she was a relatively minor character in the Salem Witch Trials. So I'm more comfortable thinking my way into someone that I have wholly invented, but who I've invented based on what I imagine to be or endeavor to make really historically stringent parameters. Wow. And and you said earlier that it's very different for nonfiction. I do have some questions about nonfiction yeah. later, but since you said that, I'd love for you to say, well, so you said it was the opposite almost. It is. In a way, it's the opposite. So in working on Vanderbilt and Astor, you're starting from the standpoint of what's happened. You know, you like, this is what has happened. And then you kind of, from what's happened, a near infinity of people you can choose from, you choose people that you want to focus on. And then you're going from seeing what those people have done, or in some rare cases, what they have written about themselves. Although oftentimes, you know, something like memoir is not going to be as illuminating as you think. We're, we're all terrible yeah. reporters on our own motivations, I find. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe psychologists would differ from that, but that is my impression <laughs> as a historian. And so then, you know, from what happened to who are we talking about, and then to trying to extrapolate what we know about that person in that moment in time to try to extrapolate how that person might have felt. Mm. But trying to do that while still being, you know, true to the source base and not, you know, overreach. And so, you know, Anderson and I were both very interested in focusing on individual stories of yeah. basically regular people caught in rather extraordinary circumstances, which is the same kind of material I'm drawn to in historical mm. fiction, mm. but necessarily constrained by the facts of what they did. Right. Right. And having just read Esther, it wasn't what I expected. And I, I was, yeah. I really enjoyed kind of dropping in, you know, every <laughs> 20, 50, however many years you would just drop into a person or perhaps sometimes a location yeah. and, you know, get a story, which, yeah. you know, is not the, it, it's a very kind of breezy, refreshing, but also I had no doubts that I was mm -hmm. getting an absolutely accurate you know, historical record, but... Yeah, Astor yeah. was a little bit different. I think a lot of people were kind of expecting it to be a pretty standard, like, you know, history of one wealthy family. And to yeah. an extent, that's what it is. But we were also very interested in looking at the way that Astor became very quickly decoupled from the family. It became this yeah. idea or a set of places or a set of values mm -hmm. or a shorthand. And we yeah. really wanted to unpack that in some surprising ways. And, and also you know, looking at the Gilded Age and thinking about the fact that many people 
have argued, and I happen to agree that we're living in a second Gilded Age, um, we really wanted to look at what was happening outside of the rather cloistered and comfortable environment in which the Astors found themselves in the 1870s and 1880s. We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Katherine Howe. Stay with us. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we wrestle with creative challenges and try to provide our best solutions. So what are your creative challenges? Let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, back to June's conversation with Catherine Howe. Okay, so let's go back to a true account. I'm going to mm-hmm. abbreviate the title a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I realize we need to be careful about spoilers uh, because mm-hmm. there are several plot twists in There's the book. There's some twists, I know. But I, I think it's okay to say that there are two concurrent narratives. One, yes. as you say, in 1726, involving a young woman who finds herself on a pirate ship, mm-hmm. passing herself off as a boy. Mm-hmm. And one in the 1930s, mm-hmm. involving a professor who works in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who is trying to authenticate a narrative that involves that same young pirate. So one of the things that struck me is how in the novel, you often leave things unexplained. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in the pirate narrative, the swear words are sort of censored. They you are. Know, damn is just D, D, dot, dot, N. Or I can or explain is, why if you would like yeah, to know no, why that and, is. I mean, uh, and yeah, I would love to know. But also, it's yeah. the fact that you don't explain in the text that I found interesting. Because I can kind yeah. of imagine. I actually don't yeah. know if I guess right. But yeah. um, but then another, to give another example, Marion, the professor, goes to a lesbian bar in New York City. Yes. And the cab driver says, got your three pieces on, but mm-hmm. you don't explain that. Again, mm-hmm. I know what it means, but mm-hmm. I assume some readers won't. Probably and, not. Yeah. And clearly you did this intentionally because as a yeah. writer, you do everything intentionally. <laughs> And so I'm very curious, not only yeah. for the explanations, but also for why you leave those sort of un, those things for, for readers to figure out for themselves. Yeah, it's funny. I've noticed there are a number of ways to answer your questions, but I'm going to kind of wax vague for just a second. <laughs> so this is actually not my first pirate novel. I, I wrote a pirate novel a couple of years ago, totally different setting, totally different time, totally different context. That is a failure. Mm-hmm. And it's in the drawer. And I think every novelist has a, a book or two or sometimes many books that are in the drawer. And I tried to make it not a failure and I couldn't. But one of the reasons that it fails is because I was trying to do too much with it. And the reason I was trying to do too much with it is because I found myself as a mid-career novelist kind of constrained by the fact that no matter see if this will make sense to you, but any novel that I write will by definition be a Catherine Howe novel. Mm. Sort of chafing against the strictures of myself, if that makes any kind of sense. Ah, And so with the first pirate novel, I tried to push myself outside of what that could be, and it didn't work. It it failed. And this one, I actually took the opposite tack. It's more pared down. 
And one of the things I was thinking about, you know, in a typical Catherine Howe novel, I have discovered, a Catherine Howe novel typically has two timelines. And often, in fact, I think every Catherine Howe novel has Mm -hmm. two timelines, with the possible exception of The House of Velvet and Glass, which is largely in just one timeline. But I've also noticed that typically one of the timelines will be serving to explain the more historical timeline. That's why I like to write about academics and students. And maybe it's because yeah, yeah. I too, you know, I started writing as an academic and I think of myself as a student. And so it's, it is one of my storytelling habits, I guess. <laughs> and so I, one of the things I tried to do in a true account, I don't know if it's going to be too much of a spoiler, but so you start reading the book and you're reading it and you think you're just reading a novel. You're involved in the story. It's Hannah's story. You're sort of getting caught up in it. And then at a certain point, pretty early on in the novel, you realize, actually, no, you are reading over someone's shoulder. You're actually not mm-hmm. in the story. You've been reading what someone else is reading, and what someone else is reading is, is Marion. So even though Marion's percentage of the book is smaller than Hannah's, mm-hmm. in a way, all of the story is happening in 1930 because Marion is reading a text. The text is called A True Account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. That's why the title is so long, because it is from <laughs> all these 18th century books. I don't know, many people have probably never looked at 18th century novels or books, but their titles are these wonderful long, being an account of the sojourns of this and of that, and they go, out, mm-hmm. they go on for a whole page. So that's why the swear words are blocked mm-hmm. out, because if you look at 18th century fiction, for the most part, swear words will be blacked out. Mm-hmm. In fact, we went back and forth with my editor whether or not we should black out any mention of God as well. And we ended up uh. keeping God in, but we took out all the damn. So it is a way of preserving the sensation of mm-hmm. reading a legitimate 18th century book. Yeah. But I also didn't explain much of the kind of particularities of Marion's moment like the three pieces. So the three pieces is, you know, but I will explain in case our listeners don't know. Um, so in around in the 1930s, there was a time. Actually, all the way until the 70s, really. Into the 70s, it lasted that long. There was mm-hmm. a time when you could be put in jail for cross-dressing, essentially. Gender presentation was actually heavily policed. And so in order to get around the risk of being policed in that way, you had to have... I don't remember, you you probably know this, June, better than I do, but you had to, was it actually legal or was it sort of apocryphal that you had to have three pieces of clothing that were appropriate to your gender on? Well, it was widely believed, but it really wasn't necessarily true. But like all of those things, they kept things intentionally vague to keep people anxious and... Yeah, so so Marion, I don't think it's too much of a of a twist to say Marion is we never really learn exactly how gender nonconforming she is, but she is represented as a, a queer woman, gay woman. And she goes to a space in New York City that was a real place mm-hmm. that was kind of reserved. It was a, a safe space for women in that time period. And I learned about it because in Astor, we actually have a chapter that is about the Astor Hotel Bar, which is a famous famous space for gay men. And yet the reason the Astor Hotel Bar, it was this was a like well-known almost the world over as a meeting place for men. And that was true from the beginning of the 1900s to its closure in 1966. And one of the ways it was so successful was because of the kind of enforcement of subtlety that took mm-hmm, place mm-hmm. there. 
Mm-hmm. And so I, it got me thinking about space and spaces of safety, because of course, one mm-hmm. of the, one of the central kind of themes in Hannah's part of a true account is how she can guarantee her own safety within a given space. What kind of presentation must she make in order to guarantee her safety? How, and, and characters talk a lot in a true account about how you can appear to be what people assume you are to guarantee your safety. So that's actually mm-hmm. a theme in both of the storylines. Mm-hmm. And of course, Hannah has disguised herself. So both storylines have a lot to say historically about gendered presentation, about sexuality and about expectations that are mm-hmm. attached to both of those things, which are both very different, I would say, from a lot of the conversations that are unfolding in culture today. And so I thought it would be interesting to have some of the historical perspective, the, you know, the moments in time when when those questions were raised and answered in slightly different ways. And I mean, I have to say, um, in many ways, I feel that gay history is best written as fiction because so much was was hidden that it's so hard to find the truth. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I'm curious about, we've talked a little bit about the not only the difference, I mean, I guess in some ways the difference between fiction and nonfiction is just that word mm-hmm. non, uh, but, um, but whether you can work on both in the same day, like, because to <laughs> me they're so, so different. And yet when it's historical fiction, there you are, you know, you are going to primary sources. Mm-hmm. So I'm, again, like wh- where, can you do them both? Oh, not, not really. <laughs> so I was in the editorial process for a true account at the same time that, that I was for after. So, so I you mean you were, you were tweaking your manuscript? You were... Yes. It would not have been possible for me to be drafting them at the same time. Mm. I just have to get too much into the world that I'm involved with when in the drafting process. Yeah. In yeah. the editing process, I'm able to toggle, but it's hard. Yeah. And I also have discovered... You know, I don't know if this is a function of middle age, uh, encroaching perimenopause, uh, three books at once. I, like, I, I reached a point where I'm not actually able to keep everything in my head at the same time anymore. Yeah. I'm just yeah. not able to do it. And in yeah. fact, it's funny because I'm being approached now for you know, various book clubs or, or yeah. podcasts or what have you. And sometimes they want to talk about Aster and sometimes they want to talk about a true account. And sometimes they want to talk about Vanderbilt. And recently uh, someone wanted to talk to me about witchcraft in Salem. And I'm getting to the point where I'm like, I don't know if I can do that. <laughs> I'm starting to max out, I think, my hard drive. I wish I could like clean up my fragmented files and yeah. like offload all the episodes of Smurfs I watched in 1982. Right. I don't need to have those on the hard drive anymore. Uh, yeah. So let's talk about Aster. Um, I haven't mm-hmm. read Vanderbilt, so I can't talk about that. But you That's good because I barely remember it at this point. <laughs> Uh, it's not true. I can still talk about it. But both of those books, your two published nonfiction titles, right, other than the anthologies, they were mm-hmm. written, co-written with Anderson Cooper. And I'm just curious how you divide the work. It's interesting because, and the process is, was a little bit different because, of course, Vanderbilt was a much more personal project for him. Yeah, because the Vanderbilt's is his right. family. Yes. Right. His mother was Gloria Vanderbilt, as I think everyone knows. And um, he had grown up with a pretty complex set of feelings about the Vanderbilt family in general. He's spoken publicly about that many times, so I'm not speaking out of turn there. But generally speaking, you know, I, he had written memoirs before. He wrote a memoir of his time as a foreign correspondent, and he had written a 
book that with his mom that was a collection of their correspondence to each other, but he'd never written a history book before. And so I was brought on as someone with history training who was also accustomed to writing for a popular audience. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, we found, fortunately, that Anderson and I were interested in a lot of the same kinds of things. You know, Vanderbilt ends up actually being more about Vanderbilt women than uh-huh. it is about Vanderbilt men, partly, I think, because we were, you know, kind of thinking about Gloria, who was still mm-hmm. living when we started working on the project, but mm-hmm. who unfortunately passed away before it came out. Mm-hmm. And Aster, we ended up taking a slightly different tack, you know, that we we do look at some Aster women, but instead we we look kind of around the Asters at sort of the way that they changed the world and the way that the world responded to that change and what Aster came to mean. And so my job was to do, you know, a lot of the a lot of the research work to kind of sketch out what we were going to talk about. And then interestingly, we use Google Docs so we can work in a document together at the same mm-hmm. time. And we were we were working so hard on Aster that we actually kind of reached the limit of what Google Docs was able to withstand. Like there was a point when we were writing kind of revising so much and working so hard that Google Docs kept freezing up. And we'd oh my have God. To like, yeah, I know. It was like steam is coming out of the top of the computer. <laughs> and one of the things that's interesting is that the voice that emerges is different from his voice in his memoir. And it's related to, but still slightly different from my voice when I'm writing fiction or when I'm writing alone. But one thing that's nice about it is we find many of the same things funny. Yeah. And yeah. he is such a perfect, I mean, he's a perfectionist. I'm also a perfectionist. And one of the things that's interesting too about our collaboration is that he is a journalist and mm-hmm. I'm a historian and storyteller, but historian. And in each instance, we are trying to arrive at what is the truth. But what's been fascinating to me is that. For a historian, the truth is what we can plausibly argue from what the archive tells us. Mm, mm. And in journalism, it has to be much more narrow. It's, is it true or is it not? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I'll give you an example. Um, I discovered that we had a different definition of true when we were thinking about talking about whether or not Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Commodore, had a slaveholding family. And there are all these apocryphal stories about the Commodore as a child, you know, playing with enslaved children or knowing them or what have you. These are apocryphal. We can't really back them up. There's also a story about sort of a Tom Sawyer-esque story where his mother says, I'll give you some money you want if you can clear all the rocks out of that field by thus and such time. And the story is that the Commodore enlisted some children to help him. Like, okay, who Mm -hmm. wants to go help me clear rocks out of the field? Okay. So what I say, and and then you look at the patterns of slaveholding in 18th century New York. You know, slavery in 18th century New York did not look like plantation slavery. It looked mm-hmm. like urban slavery, which would mean, you know, a household might have one or two enslaved workers or, you know, but not like legions. Yeah. But you would also say that the way that culture was structured at that time, any family that could afford enslaved labor had it. So from my perspective as a historian, like, did we find a list of names? We did not. Mm -hmm. Do we know for a fact? We do not. If you look at the economics, the apocryphal stories, is it plausible to suggest that the Vanderbilts 
we're a slave-holding family. I, I, it is. It is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we say to a certainty? We cannot. Mm-hmm. And so that was an interesting point where we were you know, trying to decide how we were going to address. It's an open question. He, would, he, yeah. he said, well, can we say that there are no records that say that they own slaves? I said, no, we can't say that because we, there could be records we haven't found yet. Also, Vanderbilt, I hasten to add, we were working on during COVID. There was very limited archive access for that yeah, book. Like, I, yeah, I right, yeah. right before everything shut down, I ran to the New York Historical Society and digitized everything I could get my hands on that mm. had the word Vanderbilt in it <laughs> on my phone, and then like combed through all of it. Like, but there's there are plenty of archival sources that that we simply weren't able to access. Yeah, and I mean, it just it's really interesting to hear that answer because. I actually listened to the book. I listened to the audiobook, which which mm-hmm. Anderson reads, and the beginning of the book, this is to say, I guess the prologue is is very personal. It's, it's about his experiences growing up, interacting with members of the Astor family. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a great story, isn't it? When he's a yeah, it really is. Um, but for the most part, you know, it, it's written in a kind of a historical voice. But there are just occasionally these asides, which I again imagine as parenthetical statements. And they're always just a little bit bitchy, a little bit, but like very arch, very funny. Mm-hmm. And you really sort of feel like it's in his voice, but it, I don't think that's just him. And so it's really, it, yeah, it's nice to have that feeling that I had when, when listening confirmed by you. So that's really great. I'm a total bitch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> arch. Let's just say arch. Bitchy is... Bitchy oh, is, is uh, I'm arch. Yeah. I'm arch. <laughs> I do not have a problem with authority at all. (laughs) All right, Catherine Howe, thank you so much for joining us on Working. Thank you for having me, June. It was a real pleasure. Coming up, June and I will talk about scheduling for productivity and much, much more. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. June, I loved your conversation with Mm -hmm. Catherine so much. As a history nerd, as someone who's read and loved her work, it was just so fascinating to hear how she does what she does. And one thing that stood out to me, as it did to you, June, is just how productive she is. Three books this year, two books in 2014. And as she sees it, the way she described it to you, that productivity is aided by focusing on only one project at a time. Now, June, I see you as one of my productivity superheroes as well. Oh, my you, God. Wow. You do so That's much. That's a lot you, coming from you. <laughs> no, <laughs> seriously. You write. You podcast. You 
edit, you manage, you do so many other things. I don't know how you get it all done. And I'm curious, are you like Catherine, where you prefer to focus on just one project at a time? Because that's what she attributes a lot of her productivity to is just that one project at a time mentality. Do you like to do that? Or do you prefer to jump around between projects? Oh, this is a real three bears question, I think. When you have too much to do and your to-do list fills you with dread because there are just too many non-negotiable tasks and not enough time to get them done, that feels just awful. But personally, I start to feel really antsy and itchy and generally like unsettled when I don't have enough work to keep my mind occupied. So I don't enjoy either extreme of like tons going on or, you know, not enough. You know, maybe that's not altogether unusual. But I would say that my ideal situation is to have a small number, maybe one or two big projects that I can devote the bulk of my time to, enough time that it feels like I've really got a chance to do a good job. But then I like to have a variety of small things that I can take care of when my brain power is a bit depleted, You know, those could be administrative tasks or repetitive things that don't demand a huge amount of creativity, but really have to be done. And you can feel good about ticking them off the old to-do list. You know, you get that dopamine hit because, oh, done. Um, (laughs) I will also mention something that I find productive and that maybe is more akin to what Catherine was describing, which is when it's possible to create a sort of predictable schedule in the sense of, you know, on a particular day, I'm going to do a particular thing. So I'm I'm going to write on Mondays. I'm going to podcast on Thursdays. I'm going to do my planning on Sundays. If you can protect your schedule to so that you can tackle only one kind of work on a set day on a consistent basis, that for me can be really generative. But it's also pretty hard because life generally doesn't cooperate. Yeah, it is tough. I mean, I think a lot of us struggle with how should we approach productivity? How can we do the most? And, you know, how can we do what we love doing? Which, yeah, yeah. Catherine Howe loves what she does. Yeah. We're lucky, June. For the most part, we love what we do, too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I, I'm reminded of something that Oliver Bertman, who was our guest on working a couple of years ago now, pointed out, which is, There are a limited number of hours. There is nothing you can do. Don't fool yourself into thinking, if I only had a better productivity strategy. No, there is a limit. You can only get what you can get done. So try and be realistic so you don't kind of depress yourself. Uh, That's also very important. I also just make peace with the fact that I'm not going to be like Catherine and write three books in six months. It's just not going to happen. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Now, I really enjoyed the moment in your conversation when Catherine referred to what she calls her, quote, storytelling habit. I Mm. loved that term she used. Mm. In most of her historical fiction, she has two timelines with one timeline serving in many ways as an explainer for the other. That is her storytelling habit. And it got me to thinking about the storytelling habits of other authors I've read. For example, when I think of Emily Bronte, All I can think is flashbacks, flashbacks within flashbacks within flashbacks. (laughs) Do you, June, have a storytelling habit that you enlist in your own writing or in conversations or one that you particularly enjoy in other people's work? Well, I think in my own work, I'm a bit of an oversharer. I regularly find myself telling a story from my life to show how I reached a deeper understanding of an issue in the hopes, I guess, 
of helping readers come to a similar epiphany. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, as long as you're kind of in control of what you share, you know, you're not just like, oh, somebody will pay me if I'll say something I'm not comfortable with, you know. And yeah, I'm not talking about stuff like that. I'm just like, <laughs> the reason I've, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I do this. Is, it's like, do I do it too much? You know, if you use the same technique over and over in the same project so that it seems to be repetitive, that's obviously not good. But I find this useful. And sometimes I go through the process of trying to understand something based on my experience of it. And then I don't put that into the finished text. You know, we can make oh. use of our storytelling habits without having to share them with the world so they kind of become over familiar. But yeah, I think it's very useful to figure out like what you naturally kind of tend toward. That was super interesting. Oh, that's so interesting. Your approach, June. I'm going to try <laughs> that now. Just use my storytelling habits and then maybe remove some of them later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, as some Slate listeners may know, June, you have more in common with Catherine than you let on to in your conversation. Mm-hmm. Like her, you're also a historian oh. with a new book coming out next year called A Place of Our Own, Six Spaces That Shaped Queer Women's Culture. And so I'm going to ask you a question that you asked Catherine. In writing that book, did you start with the times and places and go from there? Or did you start with the people and those people led you to the times and places because you are dealing with some major historic figures in this book? I definitely started with the places and then that set the timetable. And then fortunately, that meant that I was able to reach out to some of my heroes, really, especially in you know places that have been important to me, but just people who made things happen. You know, I really admire that as somebody who's a little bit passive. Maybe sometimes we're drawn to journalism because we get to chronicle, you know, other people's uh, tales of adventure. Uh, but it definitely started with the place. I knew early on that I did want to f- show how the locations where we gather shape who we are. But that doesn't mean that it was always clear exactly which places I would be talking about. I mean, some were obvious, bars, bookstores, they're just too important not to include. But that wasn't necessarily true for all of them. And there were a couple that I almost included and then decided not to. For example, the television set. Mm. I was kind of thinking, you know, I love TV. And I really think that shows like Glee that brought, you know, representations of queer people into family living rooms, into maybe younger people's, you know, private spaces, or these days their phones. I think that was really important for changing social attitudes around gender and sexuality. But it also felt like just a very different kind of place. And also there was much too much outside control. Because really the kind of places I really wanted to explore were ones where individuals could and did kind of establish something new with a little bit of money, usually a very tiny bit of money and a huge amount of effort. So that's that history there. I'm so excited for that book. It's coming out in like six months, right? Yeah, uh, end of May 2024. (sighs) Everybody needs to get that book. I'm so excited. (laughs) All right, finally, before we wrap up, What work of historical fiction or nonfiction have you recently really enjoyed? It can be Catherine Howe's work. It can be anyone else's. Well, I really did enjoy Esther. I really enjoyed A True Account, Catherine's novel, which is coming out on November 21st. But I also have to tell everybody 
about a book that was just so amazingly good that while I was reading it, I was basically live blogging my reading in emails to just about anybody I could think of who had not already said, will you stop telling me about this book? I hear it's good. Yes. <laughs> it is called Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. It's by Caroline Fraser. Of course, Laura Ingalls Wilder, she was the author of the Little House on the Prairie books. This, you know, the, this is a biography of her. It talks about the books, but really it's one of those biographies that uses one person's life to tell a big historical narrative. And oh my God, what a narrative it is. It's the story of homesteading, of Western expansion, of, you know, colonial settlers. It's about religion in American life. It's about family life and relationships, journalism and publishing, and about a million other things. It's beautifully written. It's just full of just incredible little details like Laura Ingalls Wilder didn't publish her first children's book until she was over 60 years old. I mean, it's just one of those books that remind you how awesome books can be. I recommend it to everyone. I second that. I devoured that book. I oh. loved it so much. I learned so much. I mean, yes. before that book, I kind of bought into a lot of the mythology I was raised yes. with, including the mythology that Laura Ingalls Wilder had made up herself about America. Yeah. And yeah. Prairie Fires really does correct the record on a lot of those things. Everything from, you know, climate change yes. in America in the early days yes. to yes. what pioneers actually looked like. A huge percentage were not white. And all exactly. of that is made clear in Prairie Fire. So I totally agree with you. That's a fantastic work of history that everybody should check out. I wish we could talk more and more about this, know, June, but <laughs> unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. And before we go, just one more reminder that if you join Slate Plus, you'll get to hear all of our episodes ad-free. You also get to hear the exclusive segments on our show and a lot of other Slate podcasts. And you'll get to hear entire bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. And of course, you'll get full access to all the articles on Slate.com. You can sign up today at Slate.com. Slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Catherine Howe for being our guest this week. And thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews, who will undoubtedly go down in the history books as one of the great ones. We'll be back next week with Isaac Butler's conversation with choreographer Roger Feather Kelly. Until then, get back to work. 